Welcome to the 25th episode of Cartoon Avatars. I'm your host, Logan Bartlett, and I am joined today again by a producer, behind-the-scenes man, uh, known as T- Red Point's TikTok guy, Rashad. How are we doing today, Rashad? Doing pretty good, man. Rashad and I were out in San Francisco together this uh, this week. Um, I... Uh, I appreciate you hopping on again, back-to-back weeks. Uh, so this this week's episode, you're going to have, um, uh, on the back half, you're going to hear uh, a conversation I had with uh, with the CEO of Braze, Bill Magnuson, who's a, a longtime friend of mine. I was fortunate enough to invest in Braze when they were called AppBoy back in 2016. Uh, Bill is unequivocally my smartest uh, friend, and now that he's a public company CEO, I... Uh, I don't view this as purely shilling his business. Uh, I think it's much more interesting than that. But Bill is a uh, really smart, interesting guy. So excited for people to, uh, to to hear that. Yeah, I had to go back and watch. I, so I was listening back to it. I obviously sat in on it live and then I listened back to it. The dude is just like freakishly smart. Yeah. Like every time I think to myself every now and then, like, oh, you know, maybe one day I could start a company or... And then I meet someone like Bill, and I'm just like, if that's what the competition is, then, then definitely yeah. not. It's like, it's like, oh, there's different kinds of intelligence. You know, some people, I always think it's funny when people are like, oh, I'm not a good text taker. I, I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, and there are obviously are biases against tests in general, but there's clearly different types of intelligence, right? And I think uh, Zach certainly has uh, one type in, in spades for sure. Uh, I think Bill also has all of the types of intelligence. Right. Uh, so, yeah, no, I think when you start going to start taking college level math courses in seventh grade or whatever it was, I think uh, I, I think you're you're on a different trajectory, at least than I was from an academic ambition. But then he's also like doing like advanced debate thing and then winning the championships and then he worked for a hedge fund and then he like I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah. And then he's also going to Burning Man for two weeks at a time and yeah, uh, all that stuff. Right. He's like actually social too. Yeah. He's a social guy. Well, uh, Rashad, thanks for, um, yeah. So, so I guess a little bit of context, but, um, on some of these, uh, intros, we've been trying to figure out the exact recurring format and Zach is flat out this week with, uh, with like team offsites and a bunch of stuff that he has going on. So we have a few different conversations in the can or on the come with, uh, with Zach here, and he's going to continue to be a, uh, a recurring person. But uh, I figured pulling in uh, Rashad more to this just so I, I had someone to talk to, at least for the intro segment. Rashad was kind enough to do that. So maybe, I mean, Rashad, maybe give a little bit of your uh, your background because this is going to be the, I guess, second time people have heard you on here, but maybe give a little bit about your role here besides helping me out with the podcast and uh, how we met and all that stuff. Yeah, I guess we came into contact like towards the end of last year. Um, I was working at Looker, which is one of our portfolio companies that was acquired two years ago. So going into year three of an acquisition, working in a pretty traditional like mid-market sales role, selling to a bunch of like the digital native, uh, I was lucky to have New York as a territory. So that was fun. I worked with a lot of cool companies. Um, but I was like basically fucking around on TikTok and Instagram, making videos like dunking on my coworkers and friends and uh, really 
cringe sort of like millennial. Not as a part of the job to to be very clear. That was not helping you close uh, mid-market New York local business intelligence sales. If anything, distracting me from it. Uh, But it was definitely fun. And I was like, oh, this is cool. And then TikTok, obviously, as a platform is just insane. And you started out doing it on Snapchat, right? Just for your friends or something? Yeah, I had like the best engagement metrics for an audience of like 14 people that were you know, watching and responding. Yeah, 100% open rate. <laughs> yeah, and 24 hour of like, it was Snapchat's very ephemeral, or it was. I don't even know what the app does now. I can't, like, I feel like such a boomer when I open up Snapchat now. I like can't figure out how to navigate it. Yeah. But yeah, TikTok blew up, went viral during the pandemic, and then just kept posting uh, videos. And eventually, I think you were had sort of this thesis around TikTok and stuff. And so you were looking for people that did corporate humor, among other things that, that I did. And then, uh, yeah, we met up IRL in, uh, in New York. I think we, I met Josh first. He was like, hey, we're a VC and we want to do TikTok. Josh hadn't even joined at that point, right? So like- Yeah, exactly. It was a combination of he hadn't joined and he was like, this VC wants to do TikTok. And I was like, that makes no sense. Some would argue it still doesn't, although it is a portion of your job, but- Yeah. Oh, trust me, a lot of my energy goes into not thinking about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There are yeah. those existential, like, what the fuck are we doing moments? Well, at least, uh, yeah, at least your comments are fairly benign. I, I've had to, uh, you know, you make fun of Elon enough or like make fun of crypto enough, and it turns out the TikTok algorithm starts to be pretty malicious. So That's our right. podcast's. Uh, comments there's a lot of rage rage bait in there we get some we get some backlash purely off just as of the fact that we're an institution like i was only putting out content as an individual creator which everyone's down to support it's like what how could you hate against someone who's just like trying to make jokes and make people laugh but all of a sudden i was making the same jokes coming from redpoint's account and you've got like hyper i don't know radioactive people online like what is this vulture capital content <laughs> yeah I, I like all the ones where we make a joke and people are like vcs are trying to convince you that your labor is worth less right. than it is push back again and i'm like oh my god so wait yeah. so you started in, you started in january and basically uh the whole point was hey rashad come on and do some of this stuff related to tiktok humor and video short form video humor basically take that And spend some of your time doing that. uh, And then the rest of the time kind of helping out portfolio companies, helping with stuff like this, right? Helping us do events, helping on, you know, customer introductions and things on the portfolio side, right? So, so this is some portion of your job. People always, I think people are surprised to find out one that you work here actually officially. People are like, hang on, that's not a con. And I'm like, no, no, no. He like, he works, he works here. And sometimes people will comment on our videos. Like they'll, you, you'll see them like laugh or interact or like it. And then they'll comment right after like, oh shit, didn't realize this was an ad. I take my comment back. And it's like, yeah, yeah. I like that. Or <laughs> people accused us one time of stealing your content. Uh, you know, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, red point stealing content from corporate corporation. And yeah, like, no, I'll still get no. like two DMs a month of like, hey, just by the way, wanted to let you know that this company's been posting all your content. I was like, yeah, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so now how much of your time? Uh, so that takes up what? 
20% of your time uh, ish and then the balance is sort of spent doing all the other stuff yeah it turns out I mean all of our like the people I've met here are some of the smartest people ever and so uh, I try to focus the rest of my time on like helping and enabling some of our investors to also put out content in the medium that makes sense for them uh, and so just being sort of like a, a creative director on some of that stuff has been fun and then you've been helping uh, you've been helping me behind the scenes for all of this stuff I you know getting Zach to come on regularly to like at least do an intro or whatever is just like his schedule is such a pain in the ass and so I figured I figured at this point like at least you uh, are joining every time and gives me someone to talk to just for the intro and, and outro segments and ultimately some topics I will say, I think at times we'll go pretty deep into the weeds on stuff. And uh, I mean, you're still you're you're up to speed on the industry, right, to some extent, but also still learning elements of it. Is that fair to say? What was it that Zach said the other day? He was like, uh, I, I forget which interview, but the idea of bearer bonds came on and he was like, and <laughs> bearer the, the, bonds, I'm not a moron. Right. The guest was like, I'm not a moron. Or the Zach was like, I'm not a moron. I know what a bearer bond is. And then I'm in the background just like, yeah, totally. Like, yeah, totally. I mean, bearer obviously, bonds, sure. I mean it's uh, either bearer bonds or like there's the other kind, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's actually, that's actually from the unreleased Sam lesson, uh, interview is what that's from, uh, that I think we're going to release at the end of this month. I, uh, I think we've gotten the final, uh, okay on that, but, um, yeah, that, uh, that's going to be an entertaining one. I, I, uh, I would say that that is the spiciest episode we've, we've, uh, we've had to date. Uh, it's, it's somehow both our worst episode and our best episode, I think, uh, yeah. depending on what, how you're measuring it, uh, but yeah, no, the the bearer bonds. I'm not a moron. Was a was an amazing line. Yeah, so it's been fun. All right, well, uh, Rashad, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this intro here, uh, and thanks for at some point we'll probably cover some topics together and at least uh, have some continuity of the group. Uh, you know, if we can't yeah. get Zach on with uh, with regularity to do intros and all that, I'm always stuff. happy to um, play the uh, the everyman. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Rashad, do that, do that dumb thing that you don't know what's going on. Right, oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, so next up, you're going to hear a conversation with uh, Bill Magnuson. This was recorded uh, right before the 4th of July, um, and uh, I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Bill's a really thoughtful, um, smart guy, as I mentioned earlier. So here is Bill. Bill, thanks Logan, for doing this. How's it going? Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad we are I chased you around for a couple weeks trying to get you on. Yep. It's amazing being a public company CEO. I think it limits your window of time that you can you can talk. It definitely does, especially with people in in the industry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. I guess I am of the industry. <laughs> uh, so maybe for people that don't know, uh, tell me a little bit. What does Braze do, and then how do we know each other? Yeah, so Braze is a customer engagement platform. So we work with primarily B two C brands. And what we do is we help them manage relationships with their end consumers in a kind of more impactful and relevant way through digital messaging. So we we integrate into their products to help them understand how people are using them. We track those user journeys to get a better understanding of the customer. And then we dispatch messaging on channels like email, push notifications, SMS, or in-product messaging, delivering things like surveys, or maybe running an inbox inside of an app or a website uh, to coordinate all that digital communication and ultimately help build great relationships with those consumers over time. Multi-channel 
customer communication. At, yep. At it. Absolutely. And we know each other. So we, we go back about seven years now. That's right. Um, I believe you were living in Boston. I was. And I believe. There was a weird two-year period that I was living in Boston. Yeah. And I was down here in New York, and uh, we were fundraising. The company was actually called Appboy at the time. Which and we'll talk about. It, yeah, which there's, yeah, there's some meat on that bone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we were raising our Series C, I believe it was. Uh, it was a pretty long fundraising cycle. Like like 10 months. on Intermittently uh, raising at different points in time. I, it was like June... 2015 because i remember miles had had neck surgery you remember miles is like laid up and yep. unable to his paid manning surgery yeah his paid manning surgery uh on the zoom screen yeah and actually uh yeah it was it was a little on and off you know we were taking the temperature of the vc markets and we were also still you know actively growing the business trying to kind of time it and find the right partner and then the uh early 2016 opens up and we have you know what was referred to at the time as a SaaS crash we're probably in a little bit of a deeper one right now uh but you know that was a definitely an interesting time. We saw a lot of the VCs we had been talking to. I was pretty convinced that everyone out West just decided to go skiing at Tahoe for the rest of the winter and not really do any deals. Uh, you guys stayed around the hoop to your credit. Uh, and so, you know, Battery ended up leading the Series C and that was how uh, I would say the relationship cemented itself. Yeah, it was a great, I mean, it, it obviously in retrospect, uh, you guys are worth whatever, b- billions and billions of dollars, or three and a half, four billion, depending on where it is today, has been, uh, um, an amazing investment and a fun at the time. I think, I mean, you guys were approaching double digit ARR, probably nine, 10 million, and the deal was done at 91 posts. Yep. I remember we were haggling over. So, the, from my side, uh, Miles, who's the president of the org, kind of your, uh, uh, does a lot of the go to market stuff for the yep. business. Uh, we the market corrected and we had already passed on app boy i don't know five times or something uh there was a folder in batteries uh box structure that said i think it was called like app boy round six or seven or eight it was just like this <laughs> continuous thing and uh we remember it corrected and it was always a function of price and it's so funny to think in retrospect we were haggling over like is it 100 or 125 or 90 or 80 or, you know, 150, right? Mm-hmm. All these numbers seem so quaint right they, now. Yeah, and they seem close together, but, you know, they're pretty big percentage-wise moves, and it results in a lot of different dilution. A lot of different dilution company. for you, a yep. lot of different ownership for us. It's just crazy to be coming out of a time in which everyone just sort of viewed, hey, what's 100 million, 200 million, 300 million among friends, even a billion, you know, yep. whatever. It's all the same. And it's funny to go back to that point in time and like... Uh, yeah, we were debating like, you know, is this 7x ARR? Is it 13x totally. ARR, right? And, you know, the last couple of years have really made that look ridiculous. It's an interesting lesson because I was like, hey, listen, I think that there's some chance that this can be like a very big, important public company. But my base case for the business was that it was going to be a couple hundred million dollar acquisition, right? And so I was like, oh, I want us to be under, at or under 100 post. And it's just so funny how imprecise that like logic is, right? To think through that I actually had any idea like what types of outcomes, Mm -hmm. you know, within that band, especially as multiples expanded and contracted and whatever. It's interesting. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, to your credit, if you guys had not stayed around the hoop like that, as the market conditions went down, you know, you wouldn't have been able to make the deal at the number that you wanted to or needed to or what have you. Uh, And, you know, but from our perspective as well, we spent so long waiting to fundraise that we didn't have very many choices at that point. You know, we were starting to run out of runway. And that taught some really important lessons. You know, we definitely dialed down the burn from there, which is, a, I think, a cultural attribute that really benefits us now in the current public market sentiment. Wait, um, and by the way, when you were at 10 in ARR, 
certainly as a percentage, uh, but maybe also absolute dollars was like borderline the most you guys burned. Even even like at a hundred, you were burning less in terms of absolute dollars. Yeah. I know percentage, but I, I remember it, and it was something like thirty million or, or twenty five thirty, something like that. Well, yeah. So the total amount raised up until that point uh, was you know called something like thirty to forty million, and we've been around for five years at that point. Uh, and then to market to market when we IPO'd in mid November of last year, you know, add another five years of company life. Uh, we'd only burned 95 million total, yeah. and we actually got all the way to 250 million in ARR as we did that. So, yeah, I mean, in that range, you know, we went from 10 to 250 and burned incrementally only about 60 million bucks. Yeah, yeah, over 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 whatever, the course six of six years. Yeah, yeah, yep. that's wild. Um, so, how many people is Brace now? Uh, we're somewhere north of 1,300 today. Okay, 1,300 across. Yep, spread out around the world. Uh, I used to say that we our offices were kind of in the current and former British Empire. Uh, during COVID, we started expanding beyond that. The so. current and former British Empire, and also like the most expensive per square footage real estate in the world. Yep, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Headquartered in New York, then we expanded to San Francisco, then we went to London, and then Singapore uh, in order to kind of make sure that the sun was not setting on the Braze Empire anymore. And then uh, during COVID, our strategy of trying to put uh, offices in these regions regional hubs and then be able to travel to customers didn't really work anymore because no one could travel. So we started opening up additional offices from there. So we've since expanded into uh, Tokyo in order to open up the Japan market. Uh, we've got a, a great growing office in Berlin. We recently started hiring in Paris. Uh, and you know, as we get a critical mass of people there, we'll be opening up a physical presence. We've also expanded in the US into Austin and Chicago. Those are both super fast growing here in the Midwest Yeah, it's, or in it's, the middle of the country. Yeah. It's nice of you guys to break. I, I know you had a rule of like, we're, we're not willing to pay less than 75 bucks a square foot for office space. <laughs> yeah. I know that was like one of the considerations. It's nice of you to uh, deviate from that. So I, I want to talk a lot about Braze and all that, but let's go, let's go background first. So from Minnesota. Yep. Darwin, your father. Yep. Wonderful man. Absolutely. Lisa, your mom. Yep. Lisa. I guess I... Uh, I'm going to see them uh, this weekend, actually. Are you? Yep. Are they coming to town? Uh, no, I'm flying out there. Oh, nice. Yeah, I didn't know. Excited to see them. Uh, I saw them, what, two weeks ago for your birthday? Yep. Yeah. So I guess I guess the important part of the story, uh, we said how we originally met, but now we're very close friends. And I, uh, I obviously know your parents by by name. Was that your 35th birthday uh, two weeks ago? Yep. Uh, roughly. Roughly. So uh, grew up in Minnesota. Mom was a bookkeeper. Yep, that's Dad right. was a uh, HVAC uh, maintenance. Maintenance, yep. absolutely. Um, and so, growing up, uh, I assume they didn't have. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, weren't following the tech industry in in mass. So maybe talk a little bit about like childhood Minnesota. Uh, growing up, how, how did you get into computers originally mm -hmm. and all, all that stuff? Yeah, so I, I don't know all the background because I was only five. Yes. Uh, but a, in 1992, a friend of my dad's convinced him to buy an IBM. And so we had a, I believe it was a 46, 33 megahertz. It had a 212 megabyte hard drive. It came with a internal uh, 2400 baud modem, uh, like 2.4 kilobits per second. And uh, so that got plopped down in our basement in a little bit of a corner desk in 1992. I started, you know, using it and uh, definitely, you know, caught on to the concepts that the computer was bringing to me and, and really enjoyed it. We didn't get the internet for another um, few years. I, I still remember the first time I ever used the internet was over at my cousin's house and they had AOL and I you know, came home and was trying to convince my parents that one of those floppy disks that we kept getting in the mail, we should you know, pop yeah. into the computer and yeah. see what we could do with it. AOL 3.0 or what was the one yeah, you Yeah, were... I think that's right. Yeah. AOL 3.0. I think that was the big one that like brought, that was me. I mean, obviously we're only six months apart, but that was the one that I remember we really went all in on and my family was AOL 3.0. Yeah. And then a few years later, you know, they started mailing the CDs and you could start collecting all the CDs. But yeah, yeah it was definitely the floppy disk era of signing up for AOL. 
So uh, got into computers. You were also uh, a pretty good math student. Yeah, um, I uh, I actually, you know, early on, and I remember in elementary school, I got pulled out of math in first grade. Uh, they told my parents, that, you know, it was gifted and talented, but actually, I think I was probably being disruptive because all they, it wasn't like I got specialized teaching. I was just kind of set in the back of the room to like play with. Um, they had multiple ice cream pails full of uh, collected uh milk jug caps and then also all these colored polygons and i would just like make patterns with them and such and that was kind of how i spent first grade math uh you know and it, it put me in the corner and kept me from disrupting the rest of the class the that, teachers that, recognize you were special in some way they, yeah, exactly. they weren't just totally sure which way the specialness yeah, yeah and, and you know the kind of rural minnesota public schools didn't really have like a separate tract that was really productive to yeah, put a kid on and they so. weren't it, it wasn't uh it wasn't like a, a pipeline to stuyvesant or one of these you know <laughs> absolutely yeah you weren't like going to hotchkiss uh grooming school i imagine i don't even know what that is yeah so, exactly yeah. It's, a, it's a prep school but uh <laughs> yes so uh so you did that and then at some point, I assume uh, they recognized that you were good at math. I, I, remind me, like by the time you were a freshman in high school, you were taking college, you were going to the University of Minnesota? Yeah. Uh, so actually, and kind of a, a funny story, my uh, so I lived and grew up where my ancestors who immigrated from Sweden actually homesteaded, like literally, you know, got their 160 acres and had to farm it for five years kind of thing. Um, and so I grew up uh, right across the street from where the original homestead was. <laughs> and my family actually in the depression, uh, something crazy happened. Like the cows got poisoned and they like, they, in addition to the depression going on, they like lost their cows. And so uh, they had to sell half of it. And so the original home that they built to uh, homestead in was actually lived in by the gifted and talented counselor at my middle school. <laughs> and she recommended to my parents that I take this admissions exam to do this program that the University of Minnesota had, uh, which they shortened to UMPTIUMP, which is an incredibly appealing acronym, uh, stood for University of Minnesota Talented Youth Math Program. And what that allowed me to do was actually commute down to the University of Minnesota in the evenings twice a week. My dad, uh, bless his heart, got off work every, um, you know, twice a week for multiple years to drive me down there and would How attend. How far was University of Minnesota? Uh, it's about uh, 30 miles from okay. where I grew up. Uh, these are Minnesota freeways, though, so it's not like 30 miles commute in Manhattan, yeah, you know, yeah. but but still, uh, you know, definitely a meaningful commitment. And uh, and so drove down there and, and went through a highly accelerated math program. Uh, and, and then also through that, got to know the campus and, you know, got really comfortable down there. And then the University that of Minnesota started in middle school, seventh grade. Yeah, it was oh. when I started doing that. And that was college level math or that was like the end of high school like you know yeah, calculus so they did, and stuff. um yeah so uh it was it was accelerated so you kind of went through all of high school in 7th and 8th grade and then started into like we did single multivariable calculus in ninth grade yeah. um so that and then kind of rolled into it from there uh, but I was also then comfortable with the campus and everything and the state of Minnesota has a program called PSEO post secondary enrollment options where uh, you can opt out of some or all of high school starting in either your junior or senior year. And most people use it to start attending community class colleges nearby their high school, you know, as they get to their senior year or what have you. But technically, according to the letter of the program, you can actually completely leave high school in junior year and the state actually pays for everything. They pay for your tuition, your books, et cetera. And so I applied to do that. I got accepted into it. And, you know, the University of Minnesota was already a kind of a known quantity to me. And I had actually gotten my license over the summer. And so I wasn't relied on my dad to drive me down there anymore. So I switched to going there full time uh, junior and senior year, which was great. So so uh, accelerated program, seventh and eighth grade, started taking college level math classes, ninth and tenth, then mm -hmm. full time Minnesota. Minnesota student 11th and 12th across yep. like 
whatever English and yep yeah exactly um, the only thing that I had to do was satisfy my high school requirements for like you know social studies and uh, and English so I took you know freshman composition freshman writing I took econ and and you know some other like liberal arts uh, subjects but was primarily pursuing a computer engineering degree at the time going through uh, high school middle school obviously pretty formative years and you're a pretty social person and that's a very different program to be on than the average per like was were you were you around peers as well and being social or were you like in this weird i mean why aren't you a bubble boy basically oh well i i had a um i had a transition period a little bit because my junior year i continued doing debate so i actually had done uh you know after school activities i uh, had done competitive policy debate i've freshman year sophomore year while attending you know high school full-time and then I was able to continue competing into my junior year. And so I would go down to the U for classes during the day. And then I would drive back to my high school for debate practice in the afternoons and evenings. And so that kept me in touch with, you know, with my friends and the student body and what have you. Um, my coach actually ended up quitting that summer. So senior year, I was kind of fully disconnected. I only came back for you know prom and yeah, <laughs> like yeah. homecoming and a couple other things. Uh, I actually was rejected from my high school national honor society because I, uh, I you know, couldn't attend anything. And they decided that I was not uh, not worthy. So actually, at my uh, high school graduation party, my mom framed my MIT acceptance letter right next to my NHS rejection letter and That's had them funny. kind of on the on the diploma table. I like that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and so, uh, and so you applied to MIT. That was That's right. the only school you, did you think about like staying at Minnesota or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Minnesota was kind of the default. Uh, and so as a result, you know, I also first generation college student, uh, didn't have my college, didn't really have a concept of like a college admissions counselor or anything like that. You know, the vice presidents. Hotchkiss were, does by the way. Yeah, I'm sure they do. Yeah. Um, the, uh, they probably don't have quite as many vice presidents that are solely focused on discipline either. So that was, you know, that was kind of what the, the guidance at my school was like. That's where they I, allocated their resources. Yeah, yeah. It was like a guide on how to stop getting in fight. In the yeah, hallways, that's right. The primarily. metal detector took the money over the yeah. <laughs> exactly, and so uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I applied only to MIT, and I actually not like early admission, and I got it. I actually applied regular admission, and not only that, I was like you know right up to the deadline. I think I I, I distinctly remember the final day that it was uh, due. My dad and I were supposed to go snowmobiling. So my dad is out in the back, you know, getting all getting the snowmobiles on the trailer and loading up the truck and everything. And he keeps poking his head in the house like every 20 minutes. He's like, are you done yet? Like, we got to get going. You know, it's getting dark. Like, we want to get up there because you you drive up north generally to go snowmobiling. So we had a few hour drive ahead of us. And I was like, Dad, I'm trying to finish my college admi like admissions thing. Like, I'll be done soon. Leave me alone. <laughs> it's, a, it's a rare uh, college experience, I'd imagine, that the dad cares more about snowmobiling than your uh, college application. Well, yeah. I mean, to be fair to my parents, I wasn't like completely, you know, I wasn't bringing them along for the ride. Yes, I, I imagine. So he probably didn't really even know what I was doing, but you when know, you started yeah. going to Minnesota by junior <laughs> year, uh, I imagine they were like, all right, my, my son has this for the most part, but yep. yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I can picture your dad doing yeah, that. Yeah. I remember my mom, uh, actually calling me on a, on a similar point and I had used her credit card to register for the SAT. And so she got this unknown, you know, $35 charge to the college board or whatever it was called. And I remember calling me and just being like, do you know what this charge is? I was like, yeah, mom, I have to take this test to get into college. <laughs> what a, uh, I think our college application processes were a little, uh, a little different. Um, yeah. Going to private school in New Jersey, they, they were a little more hard on me than uh, I would uh, assume. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so you go to MIT, you go from, uh, you go from kind of leading yourself through the university of Minnesota, parents driving you and all that. Uh, mm -hmm. and so MIT, did you start over with all the math classes? 
Uh, no, skip ahead a little bit. Uh, but you you know, to MIT's credit, like definitely the classes with the same names are at a materially different. They're taught at a materially different level. Yeah, and so I. I you know, what I really took advantage of from the University of Minnesota coursework that I did is that it gave me confidence to take more classes at the same time at MIT. So, you know, if I if I was taking, you know, normal course of before classes, I would take five or six, knowing that I had already taken a couple of them at the University of Minnesota. So it would be a bit of a redo. Uh, so I, I took advantage of that to kind of optimize, take more classes and, and just get a little bit more breadth in my college education. Yeah. Interesting. And so uh, and debate was still a big part of you debated with my high school classmate, uh, Adam. Yep. Yeah. On you know on and off. Uh, after my coach quit my junior year of high school, I actually effectively took about three and a half years off, uh, and I picked debate uh, back up a different format of debate in college midway through my junior year. And so I ended up, uh, and then I you know we'll, we can we'll get to this later, but I ended up uh, coming back to get my master's, so spent a semester. So I I had two full years um, of debate right at the tail end of my college career uh, with your high school classmate, Adam. And Adam and I actually uh, closed it out by winning the North American Championships, which was pretty cool. He's a smart guy. He was uh, most likely to succeed in my high school graduating class. He beat me. Very Uh, nice. Yeah. Uh, And then Adam well, Goldstein. Look at you now. I know, I know. I have a podcast and he doesn't. <laughs> uh, jokes on him. No, Adam Goldstein uh, was the founder of uh, of Hipmunk, yep, which people right. might know. And now I think he's. Uh, last I talked to him, which was a couple months ago, he's like living in Montana somewhere. Uh, yeah, like the last time out. I talked to him, he was uh, he had uh, learned to fly and was flying a small plane uh, kind of around the country on some sort of you know self guided tour, which sounded like a pretty cool adventure. Yeah, God bless. I think he was being he was a visiting something for Y Combinator as well, but good guy. Um, so so you did that and then uh, came back and got your master's yep. at MIT. Yeah, so I actually uh, worked at Bridgewater Associates in the summer of 2008 as an intern. It was definitely oh, an interesting time to be in the hedge fund world yeah. you know, as the financial crisis was getting started. Interesting time, interesting place. Uh, yep, yeah, absolutely. And an interesting time to be at an interesting yeah, place uh, as they were kind of on the cusp of starting to really grow and become a little bit more notorious, uh, you know, for their culture than their their performance necessarily. And uh, and so came back, uh, finished my senior year. And was actually going to go back to Bridgewater uh, for the summer again and then come back to MIT and uh, and probably work in the PDOS group, which is a distributed systems group uh, for my master's degree. Uh, but I got this call from Hal Abelson in April. Hal is a professor at MIT, and I had actually worked with him as a course assistant uh, through the curriculum. Uh, one of the upsides of me having already done uh, the University of Minnesota's beginning computer science curriculum is that when I first started at MIT, the uh, the first computer science class that you take, which used to be called uh, 6001, actually used the same exact textbook as the one that I had taken in Minnesota. So there was another offering being given. It was an experimental new course of the kind of new computer science curriculum. It was being taught by Hal, who coincidentally is the person that wrote the textbook mm. um, that was there. And there were only about, I think, 10 or 12 of us that opted to do it because 6001 was definitely a legendary class. And, you know, a lot of people wouldn't pass up the opportunity to take it. I had already kind of, you know, taken a class with the textbook. And here I had this opportunity to take a class being taught by the guy that wrote the textbook. So I I, I took that. uh, And then over the course of the next four years, you know, was involved in that new curriculum. I, you know, when they offered it the second time, there were only 10 of us that had taken it before. So we were ripe for choosing to be course assistants or lab assistants. So I got to know Hal and he was taking a year off of MIT to go do a sabbatical. And on his sabbatical, he was uh, a visiting professor at Google, which is um, in their system is technically you're an intern. Uh, so Hal liked to call himself Google's oldest intern. Uh, but when he got you know to Google, he obviously had this long lineage of 
people that he had taught, you know, all these PhDs and other people he'd worked with in the past. So he had pulled together a group of people that he had uh, worked with in the past to build a visual programming language for building Android applications. And the goal with it was to kind of bring it into the lineage, if you're familiar with things like Scratch or Logo or Star Logo, uh, which today are used to teach kids of all ages computer science. Uh, we wanted to kind of build one of those for mobile and bring it into the classroom. And so uh, there were actually pilots with like Harvard, MIT, with Georgia Tech, with University of Michigan, um, with UCSF, um, a number of other participating schools. So Hal called me and was forming this team to start this project called App Inventor for Android. And you know it was really exciting to me because Android had just launched that fall. And I had a lot of conviction in mobile and, and how it was going to change the world. I had um, a lot of interest in as well in just kind of both the educational side of it of, you know, how do we teach more people programming? But also uh, the idea of visual programming languages is really interesting to me. I think I had uh, tried several of them out in the past and felt like they had a really hard time kind of breaking through that glass ceiling of functionality and, and really moving beyond being toys. And so was excited about the opportunity and, and you know, called up Bridgewater, told them that I was going to, you know, pass up on the. Op the option of coming back that summer and packed everything up, moved out to uh, San Francisco and worked out of the Android building in Mountain View that summer. For how? Just for the summer? Yeah, well, so I worked there uh, in Mountain View for three months. And then as we got to the uh, end of the summer, the team included a couple other visiting professors and, and some other people from academia. So we were going to lose about half of the team as we went into the fall, but we're going to run these pilots for uh, all of the introductory computer science curriculum. And so they needed more people on the team. And I kind of volunteered up that, you know, I would be able to keep working as long as uh, we could figure out some way for me to pay for my master's degree, you know, when we got back. And so uh, Google offered to fund a research assistantship. And I ended up with a pretty good setup where I went back, you know, I, I had a class one class that I had to finish for my master's and I had to write the thesis and I continued working on the project at Google and then wrote my thesis about the project itself. It's cool. Yeah. So you graduated uh, in four years? So I did. Yeah, I did my undergraduate uh, in, in the normal four years, graduated in uh, summer of 2009 and then came back and did my master's in a semester and then finished at the end of January in 2010. Got it. And, and undergrad was in? Computer science. Yeah. So they were both in computer science. They were. Yeah. Yep. Got it. Uh, and so then you did all that and Bridgewater is still hanging around. And like, what was the, uh, I guess you were there for a summer at that point. You had been at yep. Bridgewater doing... Yeah, so working on the technology, the team called Cortec, and basically what we worked on were all the systems that were shared across other groups. So all the kind of common infrastructure, data manipulation systems, et cetera. I, a, a place known for sharing, uh, but this is actually the infrastructure. So, yep. uh, and you went back there to pay off student loans like remind me you you knew you wanted to do something entrepreneurial yep. but you're like hey I, I need to do something that pays me first yeah exactly I mean I you know for a variety of family reasons you know and and also with the student loan kind of hovering over me didn't have really the financial independence to be able to go and take big risks at the time and so you know I, I also really loved the team that I worked with at Bridgewater and the challenge of the problems that we were working on and so I made the call to move back and then the way that I lived my life when I was there was very cheaply you know I shared a house in Connecticut with like four other people I think my rent was 
like 540 bucks a month uh, while I was working at Bridgewater. And so I was able to just, you know, save a ton of money uh, and very quickly got my student loans paid off. And, and you know, the, the situation with my family improved over that time period as well. And so, you know, that kind of got me to the point where I felt like there was an opportunity for me to, you know, jump out of the nest, if you will. A lot of entrepreneurs at that Bridgewater kind of core tech uh, kind of coming out of that group. I know we at least have uh, Nick from Gardner in the portfolio, Domino Data Labs, yep. like all these guys were uh, now Cedar uh, yep. are, are all interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, you know, it was a great time. They they had a few years of uh, of really good college recruiting and we were all together. You know, it was a it was kind of a an awesome group to be a part of because, you know, when you look at all the businesses that have been built by people that came out of there, it's rare that you would get all of those people in one place. And, you know, the major reason we were able to is because everyone was earlier in their career. Bridgewater's culture, for people that don't know, is uh, how would you describe it? How would you describe like what their ethos is and a lot of the stuff that they um yeah, kind of believe in. Yeah, I mean the the key parts of the ethos are you know having a heavy emphasis on direct communication on you know they call it radical transparency uh, and using that to really deeply diagnose root causes of issues you know dig into things um, to, to get really uh, base level understanding and then extrapolate that all the way up. And that that goes into their investment process as well. They want to kind of deeply understand how all these big systems in the world, you know, they're a global macro fund. So they're, um, you know, they're not, you know, coming in and out of equities all the time and things like that. Like they certainly do do equity trading. But, um, you know, they're really interested in understanding how the major parts of the world fit together, work together, interact with each other. Um, and then they apply that same thing to a lot of their culture, which is that if we can get a, to a deep understanding of people and what their strengths and weaknesses are and you know how they work together and when um, when we have bad outcomes in the business, if we can kind of unemotionally investigate those and really understand you know where things broke, then we can fix them. We'll be stronger through uh, this process of doing, you know, being direct with each other, having a lot of transparency um, in the environment from a communication standpoint, um, and then not hesitating to really dig deeply into root causes of issues. And, and so that manifests itself in like all meetings are publicly available or something, all communication within the firm is kind of publicly, like, how does that actually manifest? Yeah, well, there's still strong firewalls between certain teams, yeah, sure. right? So, from a compliance standpoint. Yeah, right? well, from it, it's both a compliance standpoint and also just an internal, internal control standpoint. Um, but uh, things like the equivalent of the board meetings at Bridgewater are recorded and shared. And, and not only that, they're actually adapted into like coursework for everyone to do where you listen to certain um, recordings and passages from what are called, you know, the management committee meetings. And so that there is a there's a high level of transparency. One of the things that I really liked about that being, uh, a, you know, a junior employee in, you know, in one of many departments was that I actually had a purview across the whole company. And so if you're a curious person, you're able to very quickly learn a lot about how the business operates and how decisions are made in various places. You you don't need to have like, um, you know, you don't need to be in the room where it happened, you yeah, know, yeah. if you will, uh, because the transparency actually gives you that opportunity where if your ears are open or, you know, you're paying attention, you're actually able to learn well outside of your role. And, and, I, and I did find that to be super valuable, especially when I first got there. From a learning standpoint, I totally get that. Are there other elements? I mean, it's been described to me, I, I think, Ray Dalio is a very well-respected thinker. The culture itself, I, I would say, is unusual yep. at least compared to other organizations. Are there elements of that 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 you've um, internalized and have actually brought to Braze, or is it sort of just like interesting as a young person developing? And you yeah, know? I mean, I would say that a lot of the things that attracted me to Bridgewater's culture in the first place, I carried with me to Braze as an individual yeah, at a and personal then level. have expressed that into our culture. 
Um, I, I also think that there's a lot of lessons that I learned about kind of how Bridgewater worked to scale their culture in places where they went wrong in that. Uh, it, I think it's also important to realize that, you know, running a, a hedge fund in the woods in Connecticut is very different uh, from a labor market, you know, from a like there's a lot of other kind of advantages that they have that most scaling startups do not. And, you know, they can lean into aspects of those in order to run their culture the way that they want to. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that should be directly applicable to, you know, other industries, other company sizes, other um, talent pools, things like that. So you were there for two years? I was there for about a year and a half. Year yeah. and a half. And so uh, AppBoy, tell, tell me the founding story of, of AppBoy. Right. So as I mentioned, you know, got kind of out from under my uh, the, the financial uh, storm clouds that were over me and, you know, always had uh, this entrepreneurial itch uh, and had also been exposed to mobile in the very early days, you know, through my time at Google um, and, and through my time at MIT. And so I really wanted to, you know, get out into what was a, a in my opinion, like a fast growing, you know, I, uh, market, I had super high conviction that mobile was going to change the world, you know, in much the same way that I had watched the internet change the world as I was growing up in rural Minnesota and really wanted to be a part of that. And so I, you know, started to pick my head up and pay attention to the startup world a little bit more. This was 2011. Uh, John Hyman, who is uh, Braze's CTO today and, and was my um, other third co-founder, um, back in the day, John and I were the two technical co-founders. So I was CTO at the time, John was CIO, and then Mark Ramazian was our CEO. Uh, so John and I actually already knew each other. John was my boss when I first started at Bridgewater. And you know we quickly became friends, and John really helped mentor me um, through my early days, especially at Bridgewater, to come up to speed more quickly. And he had left earlier in 2011 and was you know looking for new opportunities actively. Uh, and he invited me to participate in the TechCrunch Disrupt Hackathon with him. And I actually already had plans that weekend. I was supposed to go up to raise uh, Vermont Hunting Lodge, you know, mm. where they bring interns up there and you can go and shoot trap and, you know, generally enjoy the space, um, which is which is pretty cool. Uh, but, you know, doing a uh, programming overnight programming competition also sounded pretty cool. So, you know, I canceled on that. I would have uh, picked Ray Dalio's Hunting Lodge personally, but uh, I think this worked out. Yeah, for my you. girlfriend who was supposed to go with me would have agreed with you as well. So yeah. I actually did also cancel on her for that weekend. Ex-girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. ex-girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, and the uh, and so, yeah, we came down to New York and did the TechCrunch Disrupt Hackathon. Uh, that was something that we ended up doing very well in. Uh, you know, I think the, the headline, they didn't have a formal winner. We were one of five finalists. They said, you know, we took top honors at it. Uh, and you know, that actually resulted in a lot of inbound uh, interest coming in. Uh, John and I both got, you know, a, a lot of people reaching out. We had a couple of video interviews on TechCrunch uh, as a result of going through that hackathon. So uh, by and large, you know, there was a bunch of opportunity that essentially became available. And I was at Bridgewater and, you know, I kind of decided like, OK, you know, our stock is high right now, right? Uh, there's a lot of awareness for John and I. Uh, we should leverage this into getting started on a new opportunity. And, and you know, the time to do it is now. And so I, you know, decided that I was going to leave Bridgewater and then just needed to figure out, you know, which opportunity I wanted to take part in. During that hackathon, John and I were actually walking back to the conference on Tuesday morning, uh, you know, day two of it. And John was on the phone uh, with uh, his girlfriend, who is not his ex-girlfriend, but actually now his wife. Uh, and uh, he was talking to her. And so I didn't have anyone to talk to. I started chatting up the guy in the crosswalk next to me, um, who happened to be Bipul Singha, who was actually a partner at Lightspeed at the time, later became the CEO of Rubrik. And he then recognized us on stage the next day when we were presenting our project and tracked me down. And the 
the email when something like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, we met in a crosswalk, uh, but you know, saw you up on stage and I've got this friend who lives down in Houston, his name is Mark, and he's been looking to you know start something in the mobile space and I think you two should chat. Had Mark started, like, was Appleway incorporated at that point? Mark was doing uh, energy trading yeah, or something? Uh, no, it was uh, oil and natural gas, like, full-on, you know, drilling Rigs. and production and yeah, everything. Yeah, okay. had, like, geologists on the on the payroll and all that. Okay, so I knew, I knew it was something like that. So so uh, Mark was living in Houston. Yep. Uh, had Was Appleway incorporated? Yes, it was. So Mark had actually started... This is a long way of saying who's to blame for the name. (laughs) (laughs) So Mark had actually started um, a different company idea called Appboy a few years prior to that. Uh, It actually, uh, he got a a cool press piece where the BBC called it one of the best websites on the internet. Wow. Call it, I don't know, 2009, 2010. And and that that article is, you can still find it somewhere. Um, But uh, it was his idea was to build kind of a, a social network for app developers um, where every app would have a landing page uh, and would have like a little community on the web where their users could come and interact with them. They would uh, suggest different features for it, et cetera. Uh, and he you know, worked on that, started to grow it uh, as a side project, um, ultimately ended up shutting that down, you know, for a variety of reasons. It just didn't kind of reach the traction that he expected. You know, it was it was an interesting bridge idea because it was, you know, it just at its face, it was on the web trying to engage with mobile audiences, right? Which is interesting, uh, but trying to build communities around it. So that had been fully shut down at the time, but uh, he already had, you know, 11,000 Twitter followers and already had the domain names and everything. And so, um, you know, when we got things started, uh, we actually, there was there was never even a conversation that we would change the name. We, we really just kind of drafted off of the prior work that Mark had done there. And and so the product itself, so now today, Braze, uh, which was renamed at some point. Uh, yep, late 2017. Which I, which I, uh, advocated for for a while but uh there the the thesis behind it was it rooted at always going to be mobile and marketing automation communication was that like what it was from the start yeah, so it, it wasn't, I wouldn't go so far as to say marketing automation, because when we started, we didn't think about marketers being our customers. We yeah. actually were thinking about app developers being the customers. For a long time, and people kind of forget this, but like there was a question of was mobile going to be its own ecosystem and it was going to be standalone, or were the communication channels going to be like marketing, marketing, customer support, customer support, you know, whatever, sales, sales, and all those things. Was it going to be like a standalone mobile or was it going to be verticalized by Yeah, it? and you know, to be fair, at the time as well, there were a lot of mobile apps uh, that had a lot of excitement and investment, but there were none that were actually building sustainable businesses, right? Like there was no one that really had a revenue model in mobile in 2011, 2012. Because the app store came out in 08, right? Or 08. Uh, no, it was it was a bit later than that. Depends on whether we're talking about iOS or Android. But yeah, we were still in the infancy, right? Yeah, we were very in this, early days. We were in this like period where you could put an app in the App Store and people would download it exactly because there were so few apps in the App Store yeah. that you could kind of download, you know, whatever looked cool, right? App discovery was was certainly not a big issue at the time. So, what was the thesis at, at founding? Yeah, so I mean, primarily two things. One that you know the huge businesses would be born and built to be mobile first, and then the second one that the wide scale adoption of mobile by consumers would lead to you know a sea change in terms of how we re- interact with technology, how we interact with businesses, etc. And so, what we wanted to do was look at uh, mobile both as the consumer touchpoint, but also look at how it would change our relationship with technology uh, and what opportunities that would afford people building businesses in mobile. And so uh, the, you know, the, the founding team, we didn't have experience in marketing. I, you know, speaking for myself, 
wouldn't have been able to tell you what the acronym CRM or SAS meant when yeah. we started the company. Uh, and we were really just from first principles trying to uh, figure out, you know, how do you build a more engaging and long term uh, user base of a mobile app? So if I've got a mobile app and I want to turn it into a business, I need the kind of usage patterns of my you know users to be more than just them downloading the app and then disappearing. Right. I need to keep them around. I need to show them value. I need to have them develop habits and loyalty. Um, and, and, you know, become organic promoters of what I'm doing. You know, eventually we would figure out how to have them pay for things as well uh, in order to really drive those revenue models. But uh, that that wasn't really part of the mobile ecosystem at the time. I actually remember having conversations in 2011, 2012, where we had this toolkit and we could prove that it helped, you know, drive additional usage of a mobile app over time. And I had this app developer tell me that uh, he actually wanted his customers to stop using his app as soon as possible after downloading it because he had already sold it to them for $1.99. And the longer they used it, the longer he was going to have to pay for server bills for them. Hmm. Right. And I, I just remember thinking to myself like, well, that's not a good customer. Also, this just doesn't feel sustainable, yeah, right? Totally. Like that that model of like, you know, pay a pittance for a mobile app to download it and then you own it forever. And there's an expectation that people will maintain and keep the, a meaningful service running forever. Uh, you know, that that clearly wasn't going to work out. And that's why we see that most, uh, you know, successful mobile business nowadays are run on some version of subscription or, you know, continuing transactions and sure, things like yeah. that. Um, and that was what we needed to eventually happen because we were really building for the long term. But that that wasn't really how mobile was operating in the early days. So from an architecture standpoint, I think one of the things that, that uh, was kind of the aha moment for me when we invested was mobile was interesting-ish, but uh, the architectural decisions that you guys made, you were early adopters of Kafka, you were early adopters of Snowflake, you were early adopters of Mongo, like mm -hmm. at a commercial scale. And so were you... In terms of future proofing for all the data ingestion and all that stuff that now enables you to send notifications across email, across SMS, across mm -hmm. in-app notification, across web push, all of that stuff. Were you just like, hey, this is cool tech and we need to be forward thinking in the tech that we adopt so that we can recruit cool people? Or were you thinking that like, hey, setting up this schema and this architecture in such a uh, meaningful way will allow us to have a more holistic view of the customer and therefore be able to be much more flexible in the types of communication we can do. Yeah, I mean, so it's a few things, you know, and, and I would also call out that with the exception of Mongo, those other technologies were not in use when we started the company. Yeah. And so, you know, we 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 have always been kind of on the leading edge of adopting new technologies. We were also, um, you know, I was on some of the first alpha technology preview calls for Kafka Streaming and Kafka yep. Connect, which Confluent obviously commercialized. Uh, but prior to that, we had already built out a stream processor, you know, largely on our own by um, kind of pulling together open source software with our own development. And, and those concepts were baked in from the very beginning. And it's interesting you say, you know, mobile was interesting, but the architecture, because the architecture is exactly driven by what makes mobile unique and special. Um, I think, you know, the other thing is that we weren't held back by an understanding of how marketing technology had been built. So Which was mostly, I mean, all the people that you're now displacing are identify uh, their architecture is centered off of an email address for the most part, right? Yeah. The data models are usually centered on email addresses. And, you know, a lot of, especially if we're talking about the legacy clouds like Salesforce, Oracle, Adobe, et cetera, you know, which were all kind of foundationally built around these ESPs, like the email server providers founded around 2000. A lot of those products were built to send email campaigns, yeah. right? And when you think about kind of the performance demands of something like that, you know, if you, just to take some simple examples, if you have a five second delay before you get 
get an email, you probably don't even notice that. You got to switch to your email inbox. Your you, you know your muscle memory probably refreshes it when you open it anyway. You, you know you've already who knows five if it's the Wi-Fi or whatever. Yeah, similarly, like an email campaign goes out, you know, and and you're actually as the sender probably more concerned about throughput than you are about the time to first send. As another simple example, yep. right? But if you're throughput gonna, being did it actually get there versus how long? Did uh, it take well, no, to get so there? that would be deliverability. Throughput being like the rate at which something got is delivered, it. right? So for instance, if it takes me 30 seconds before I send the first message, but thereafter I send at 100,000 messages a second, right? I, you know, if I'm sending a big campaign out, all I care about is how many got sent in the first minute. Yeah, yeah. Whereas if I'm dispatching a single message to someone, the thing I care about is the latency of that first message, yep. right? And and the other interesting thing is that if you're going to be in a product experience, then even five seconds is inexcusable, right? You're not going to wait there while you're while a mobile app is frozen for five seconds yeah, waiting yeah. for your the driver's inbox to load, on right? its way, and you know at that point you're too exactly frustrated. there's there's a lot more real time usage that happens, yeah. and so when you look at the performance pressure of being able to communicate on a one on one basis, which was now possible at any time, which was now possible because people were bringing these devices with their with them everywhere that they went. Um, you were going to have to compete in a more noisy environment because, oh, by the way, everyone else has the opportunity to commute with to um, to communicate with people at any time as well. And so we just looked at, you know, what are the pressures that are going to be placed on this combined with the opportunities? We're going to have the opportunity to interact with consumers directly. We're going to be able to, you know, reach out to contact them whenever we want, uh, but we're going to be in a noisy environment. And we want to make sure that the experience is holistic, right? The idea that you would have a separate email team from a push notification service from an in-product messaging or whatever was like not something we ever even considered because we were trying to solve a higher level problem. Yeah. The higher level problem was how do you build good relationships with people? And you know the answer to that includes being able to communicate with them wherever they are and doing it in a way that's relevant and that is experienced by them as a holistic experience. And so you, you just kind of take those pressures and you put them on the technology and it demands that we build a you know real time capability, and so we did that through one at a time stream processing. You know everything in Braze is event driven. We process uh, new events that come to us instantaneously as they come in. That gives us an ability to be interactive in the moment, which lets us use the same architecture, the same targeting techniques, the same personalization techniques to deliver messages to you in the flow of a product experience in the same way that we would an SMS or an email or whatever that would come out of band. Yeah, and I think when you know, when we looked at that, it was logical. But again, we weren't kind of held back by the way that marketing technology was built because we didn't even know that we were building something that would eventually be used by marketers. Yeah, it's almost like you uh, you were baptized by fire in that mobile you were ingesting a bunch of different data. There wasn't a single identifier that you needed. If it, it, this mobile app might be single sign-on through Facebook, this one might be email address sign-on, this one might be third-party anonymous, and so you needed to have the flexibility around that. Yep. And then mobile app performance expectations were so much higher, and so it's almost like you had to build for the future of where everything would go, yep. starting with mobile. Yeah, and, and then from a systems perspective, there were interesting things too. You know, you look at the email service providers, and their Super Bowl is Black Friday every year, yep. and that like by far is or and like Cyber Monday, just kind of that weekend. That is by far the highest load that they experienced in any given year. But you know, that's tied by and large to U.S. the U.S. population, which is you know three hundred and odd uh, million people, uh, and it's only for a few days and it's predictable, you know exactly when it's going to be. 
you know, the early days of mobile, I remember us having these huge traffic loads on Thursdays and we like didn't know why uh, in the early days. And, and it was like it turned out that we had this application called Pickstitch, which people would use to make, uh, you know, to make like composite images that they would post on Instagram for Throwback Thursday. Yep. And us being kind of, you know, out of the loop, we didn't know about Throwback Thursday, but we were just getting these massive server loads every, you know, every Thursday. And then we started to bring on other international clients and it's like black friday is a big deal you know what's much bigger deal is the cricket world cup yeah. right and not only that but that's not that's happening at least on a surprising schedule to us because we don't even know what these culture events were that were leading to massive audiences and they were often happening in the middle of the night uh, in eastern time or what have you and so uh, from a you know kind of trial by fire standpoint definitely the ability for the system to be able to elastically scale up and down in response to demand that would often just show up and then be globally distributed. Uh, there's a, you know, it, it basically looks like being hit by a distributed denial of service attack all the time yeah. uh, as these things happen. And in many cases, we would cause them as well, because if you send out a campaign and the campaign works, then the everyone suddenly shows up in the app at the same time as well. So we, we actually we were dealing with really big audiences. They were spread out around the world. Uh, their load demands were unpredictable. And we were trying to deliver on this performance guarantee that was just as capable of delivering, you know, an email as it was of actually rendering something in the flow of a product experience, which has much higher demands on it. How much of this as we I mean, we can look back and tell a narrative of how future proofed this made you guys today to be the public company that, that you are. Uh, did you re how much of this was, hey, this is where the world's going to end up going. And so we need to service this like you could have said no to some of those customers maybe they were great customers but like you could have said hey you know this is actually going to break our entire infrastructure to deal with this and you're a one-off person that has to do this and mm -hmm. so how much were you thinking about like just solving the problems as needed at the time versus how the rest of the world might end up being getting to that point that whatever that load was on the cricket match is probably yeah. what you know, an average Braze customer does to you, your servers these days, right? Yeah. Um, you know, a few things. One, I think we always embraced those uh, those customers that really pushed us in various ways because, you know, I think the the power user, if you're building for them and you're satisfying them, then you're you're gonna kind of also satisfy you know the rest of the adoption totally. curve in a more meaningful I way. I remember Tender as an enterprise customer, and I was like, I'm not sure if this is enterprise. I remember us having this debate, and you're like, No, I mean, it's actually they're pushing our infrastructure. They're paying us a ton. They have tons of users, and they're pushing our infrastructure. And I was like, Okay, yeah, and and, and there's a lot of people. You know, we have this expressive visual programming language called Canvas, yep. and you know, we would have people that would build out these campaigns that would just do. You know, I always like, oh, man, that's really clever. Right. Well, um, but and, but and our, Canvas, you know, our... by the way. So just for people that uh, so Canvas is basically a uh, a visual guide of if this, then that kind of the flow through campaign builder that you'll do. Hey, if Logan picks up his phone uh, and responds, then don't send another message. But if not, then if he if he ignores that, send an email over here or whatever. All the complicated logic. Yeah. Right? And, and it's it's kind of a full circle thing for me that I, I had to chuckle at as I realized it a few years ago, which is if you, you go back to my story about my master's degree, I was going to go work in the distributed systems group. I ended up working on a visual programming language. Oh, interesting. <laughs> and, you know, when you look at Brace today, it's effectively a visual programming language that sits on top of a stream processor that runs as a giant distributed system, <laughs> uh, which is is a pretty cool connection. Yeah, interesting. Uh and so so in terms of uh, so so all that architecture was built out and uh, you guys were hitting your stride and there was a few of these customers. I remember us when we were doing the diligence, a few of these customers, we were like, are these going to sustain? Are these going to be like huge businesses that are going to be able to keep going? But eventually the market 
caught up to what you guys are doing and the yep. mainstream of, you know, whatever airlines and hospitality and financial services and all that stuff needed the infrastructure that you had built out. Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it took evolution on a lot of different dimensions. You know, consumers had to as a simple thing, you, you probably remember people being apprehensive about putting their credit card number into a phone. Yeah. Again, that, that seems quaint. I remember all the debates about like, should I really pay for an app the same amount I would pay for a coffee, you know, or this idea of digital goods? Um, we also, you know, when when uh, smartphones first launched, like GPSs would just drain the battery down immediately. So a lot of these location enabled services that we have nowadays were not feasible. Uh, you couldn't stream even music in the early days of mobile, you know, in the early days of kind of Android and iOS and the app store. So there was a lot where the technology caught up, the the cell networks caught up, consumer sentiment caught up. Uh, and then the businesses, you know, enterprises started to really realize that there was opportunity here. And, you know, that didn't happen until in the enterprise meaningfully until 2015, 2016, 2017. You know, it's part of the reason that that if we go all the way back to the beginning of this, you know, it took us a while to raise financing in that time period because we weren't yet at the point where the enterprise was really taking mobile seriously. You know, to the extent that the classic enterprise had mobile apps, it was usually some sort of innovation team, you know, and they were building something and they, they, you know, would treat it as a toy. They wouldn't hesitate to shut it down um, if it wasn't getting early traction because it hadn't really been integrated into their broader strategy. And then what we really started to see that that really was the turning point was when businesses started to rethink their overall strategy to incorporate mobile into it. And so it wasn't just like, oh, hey, there's mobile. What do I do with it? It was rather like, oh, mobile is the way I'm going to communicate with my customers in the future and, and thereafter. How do I change the way I do business in order to take advantage of that opportunity? And and you had built the architecture that, uh, you know, a square was a rectangle, but a rectangle wasn't a square. And so you were able to use mobile as a wedge and your architecture allowed you to then go do email. I remember uh, there was a case study I actually helped. I forget if it was you or Miles build the night before you came into Pitch Battery, but it was the iHeartRadio example of yep. like, you landed with mobile, right? You got some funky little app. Maybe it was a side project. Then you sold over to the main app, right? Then you expanded volume. Then you sold over into displacing their email, right? Yep. And they, they were paying whatever, a couple million bucks to exact target or uh, responses or Oracle, Salesforce, whatever it was, right? And you were able to use that as a wedge. And then you were built to go do email as well. That was almost like, you know, whatever, playing on eight foot hoop after you were exactly on a 10 foot hoop. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Email audiences were kind of definitely a lot smaller than the mobile audiences. We were we we ran into a whole bunch of conversations where customers were really concerned about you know they were concerned about performance delivery, and we we were just like we can so easily do this. Like what what must be going on in the legacy you know email providers? Because well, their that, SLAs were like what thirty minutes or something, and yeah, your SLAs were like 0.3 seconds. Or right, so, yeah. exactly. Like we were just operating in a totally different universe, and we didn't even realize that we were. Right yeah. now, to their credit, we were also missing features that they had that were probably table stakes for marketers that we didn't. Know about because Which is we a were, lot of the visual canvas stuff. Yeah, well, and, uh, like you know, the, for instance, we only had a drag and drop email editor as of a couple years ago, yeah. right? Um, and and so there was a lot that they had built because we again didn't think we were building marketing technology out of the gate, so we had to catch up on that. But the underlying data models and the performance of what we had was really head and shoulders above what was available. Um, another you know interesting uh, anecdote you bring up iHeartRadio. The first time they sent out a large campaign, they actually gave us a heads up because it included an image in it. And I guess when they had been working with uh, Salesforce or whoever it was, they had to give them notice in advance because they needed to like seed their CDNs to actually host the images. Mm. Because when it went out, it was just like a lot of bandwidth. And 
we had never even thought about that, right? Yeah, like yeah. the system was just built to to handle that. And so they sent us in the notice and, and it took us a while to even figure out like what they were asking about. And then we were like, oh yeah, no, that's not an issue. Yeah, you don't, don't definitely don't need to tell us, you know, before you're doing this. What do you feel like, um, and, and I don't know if you, we didn't talk about this before, but was there anything that if you were giving advice to like an entrepreneur, if you were to go run it back, right? Let's just say, uh, Bray's got acquired one day and you decided to go get uh, start another business, mm-hmm. right? Was there anything philosophically that you would go do either differently or uh, make sure you do again that like an entrepreneur or I don't know, as an investor looking at companies that you feel like you guys really, really got right and it could be something we touched on here or something that, you know, uh, it just it comes to mind. Yeah, I mean, one of them is something that we've been doing since the, you know, the Series C when we almost ran out of money, which is to make sure you've got a cash cushion, yep. right? You, you never know what's going to happen in the environment and you need to make sure that you can live to, you know, to fight another day, uh, kind of no matter what what comes at you. And so that's something where we got lucky on that, but we, you know, effectively ran out of or almost ran out of money twice uh, before we even got to our Series C. And, you know, thankfully we live, but it was, you know, it was touch and go there a couple of times. And so, you know, one of the things would just be to, you know, certainly prioritize surviving uh, so that you can make it through any sort of market conditions. And so that's, you know, that that is one thing. Survival is a precondition to success. It it, it absolutely is, you know, and and making sure that uh, that you've got both a handle on the financing. You always know, you know, the the point where the crisis has already happened is not the time to be asking yourself whether you know how to pull the right levers to be able to conserve cash and extend runway and things like that. Um, That should be a muscle that you have all the time. Uh, And it's important to put in the culture, you know, Neeraj, you know, your uh, your partner who joined as the Series C came in, he always used to say in board meetings, burn is sticky. And, you know, the the point was that, you know, you look at so many investor decks and so many projections from so many companies and they all project that they're going to get more efficient in outer years. And it doesn't happen. Right. Why burn is sticky. A big reason for that is that it's cultural. And so I think that just having a consistent culture that that ignores the kind of investor sentiment and stays hooked on to fundamentals. Right. Like if investors are telling you growth at all costs and revenue growth you know, matters more than profitability, like just don't listen to them. Like it's not it's a, you know, yeah. it might be true in the moment, but it's not going to be true forever. And so, you know, making sure that you stay attached to long term business fundamentals, that you keep that eye towards spend discipline and efficiency, um, you know, really have a good handle on your unit economics like that always matters. And so that's that's one big one. Yeah. And, uh, and just, I mean, you guys internalized this. Your last round you raised of primary capital was uh, 850 valuation yep. in what year? That was in uh, the fall of 2018. So. 2018. So so you haven't touched any, I guess you took IPO. Uh, yeah. Capital, well, but. so we, re, uh, we then made it, you know, three years and change to bef- uh to the IPO without raising any incremental capital, uh, and actually, I think we we had spent like single digit millions of that eighty when we hit the IPO. That's wild, yeah. yeah, and that included you know all the way through COVID as well. Yeah. Um, one of the other things, I mean, uh, I I think you've even when we diligent stuff, and I ask you about companies, I, I feel like you're always thinking through. Uh, the path of progress and making sure you're in the path of progress, that it's not some bridge technology that you're solving for some moment in time. Yep. And it seems like you guys have done a really good job of like, you know, the 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 old adage of skating where the puck is going, right? Eventually what you, uh, the sophisticated people are doing today is going to be should go mainstream. Should go main- like so, sometimes you can be an academic in a lab and solving a very niche problem, but like 
by and large, if you're if you're building for the future, people are going to catch up to yep. where you're going. Yeah, and, and we also talk a lot internally about making sure that we're on the right side of history yeah. when it comes to things like privacy uh, and other sorts of topics like that that have evolved over time. You know, and so the early days of location, uh, it was exciting and novel that you could have someone's location, and 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 that was pretty cool. You know, the the launch of Foursquare at South by and go, kind of going back to that um, region, a lot of the um, you know things like Tinder and such that were uh, social networks or dating apps driven entirely by location. Uh, it was cool and it was novel. And there was a lot of potential for marketing use cases. But we realized pretty early on that uh, it was also violating people's privacy. And, and where you are is one of the things that you kind of hold most dear yeah. uh, in terms of your privacy. It's, you know, it's right up there with what you say. And so we actually, uh, despite, you know, we built out some early geofencing capability to help run through certain use cases, but we didn't lean into really developing the location technology much beyond that out-of-the-box geofencing that, you know, Android and iOS supported natively uh, because I felt like it was an area that would get increased consumer scrutiny over time and then eventually you know what would what falls that is platform scrutiny changes in iOS and Android what falls that is legal scrutiny somewhere in the middle there you know journalists pick up on it and you start you get your New York Times exposés on um, you know on where your location data is going and you know those are those are things that uh, can be predicted right and there's a headline just this week actually that coinbase is you know under scrutiny for selling location data to like the department of homeland security or whomever it was right um and i, I don't know the details of that story but uh, the case in point is that you know that is something that is is a that has been a long progression of increased scrutiny on that and we could see that back in 2013, right? Yeah. And so we made the decision not to lean a ton of R&D into that. Similarly, we've never been reliant on the IDFA, right? We, in the early days, were like, we don't explain IDFA. Uh, IDFA is the identifier for advertising. Uh, was I think relatively unknown amongst investors until a change in how IDFA worked caused Facebook to lower their revenue guidance by yeah, ten yeah. billion dollars, right? Yeah. Um, but App that tracking transparency and all exactly. That, yeah. So it's it's used to help identify uh, mobile users uh, primarily for advertising Targeting. use cases. Yeah. Um, before that, there was a thing called the UDID, which which was even more problematic from a privacy perspective. And we actually just in the from the earliest days, we actually didn't use those things. We didn't need to. All we had to know was that you were still the same person as you were before. But we didn't want to actually go and like look you up and then in a demographic database and find out what the ad networks think they know about you. Um, you know, we were content just being a good listener in yeah. the first party uh, in the first party data ecosystem. And so that meant that over the years, as GDPR showed up, as um, you know, the the um, IDFA changes like that's been kind of every 12 to 18 months for the last five years. We haven't had to waste any time, you know, running around, changing our product, Undoing, like, yeah. you know, guiding customers through things because we've had those, those tough conversations about, you know, being on the right side of history and making sure that we're building in a way that is friendly to consumers. And that has allowed us to not have these things show up and be existential. You know, you probably remember when GDPR launched, a whole bunch of American businesses shut down their websites in Europe because they couldn't be compliant. Um, and there were a number of, you know, members or like businesses in the ad tech space that shut down their European operations or they lost whole lines of business and things like that. And it's so ridiculous because the way that, you know, consumer sentiment and the legal sentiment is moving was entirely predictable. And so from that perspective, you know, we've always tried to not only, uh, you know, skate to where the puck is going from a technology perspective, but also tried to pay attention to, you know, these broader things around governance and consumer sentiment and just make sure that we're really attached to the humanity of this problem. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, so 
So shifting gears a little bit, uh, so you you touched on this earlier, but you were originally CTO. That's right. And John was CIO, which is funny. Uh, CIO now in retrospect, uh, like I didn't think anything of it at the time, but you were like a 20 person company or whatever with a CIO. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and John and I actually, the way that was decided, I think we were both on the couch and we Googled like what's the difference between a CTO yeah. and a CIO and, and just kind of, you know, it was, it was scarcely more than flipping a coin <laughs> to decide those things in the early days. So you took over as CEO, Mark stepped into the chairman role and yep. took over as a CEO at the end of 16, right? Uh, that's right. Yep. Six months after we invested or like whatever, uh, yeah. kind of turn, turn, turn of the year. Around. I think January 1, 2017 was, was the official day as CEO. Was the official yep. date. I remember talking to different leadership groups within the company at the time and everyone had you you were very much like the heart and soul of all the product direction and engineering and you had recruited all the technical talent but you're uh i mean i think you're my smartest friend and uh i think at times uh people in business units were unsure about like would you understand their marketing side i think it was yeah. basically they were intimidated that you were so smart and like going about you know their world they were used to a little bit more uh coddled feelings than maybe the engineering culture well, i guess yeah i mean there's just there's just major differences in culture between like a sales organization and versus marketing organization versus engineering and, and you know and then, and then you know other people are kind of on different dimensions and and i think that uh you know there was definitely a, a probably a healthy and correct amount of like concern and worry as to how I would translate, you know, my leadership style from the technical world into um, some of these other groups, you know, and, and one of the things about engineering, um, especially at large scale like that is, and, and one of the, the, the great and terrible things about uh, software is that computers only do exactly what you tell them to do. Yeah. Right. Which means that when they're breaking, it is your fault because you've told them to do something totally. wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, neural nets notwithstanding where, you know, those things get a little bit more of a, uh, become a little bit more of a black box. But, um, and, and so, you know, the concepts of kind of right and wrong in engineering are, are you know, very More black and white, binary, yeah, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, but when you're dealing with humans, right, when you're in a sales cycle, when you're kind of helping customers onboard, when you're dealing with like technical support, when your counterparty is not a bunch of transistors, right, and a, and a bunch of very clear, you know, binary outcomes, but rather the spectrum of humanity, you know, you you have different skill sets. You have different ways of um, organizing the groups that that actually work with those. Like the the ups and downs of the job are very different. You know the way that you define success and and what makes it difficult um, are are you know completely completely different from an engineering org. And so um, that was definitely a learning process for me. You know I had been. How did been you do it so well though? Because it went from like okay, I guess we're gonna try this. Like he's the heart and soul of the company. We should try it. To a month in, it was like. Oh wow, this is awesome to 6 months in like oh my gosh this is you know one of the best CEOs I've ever been around right and so like how how did you was there someone that helped you along the way? Did you know going in you were going to have to adapt your style and so you were just super paying attention to like how people reacted to you? Like how were you able to do it so quickly? I definitely knew going in, right? Because I got, you know, this <laughs> Because we told you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this this uh the sentiment that you brought up was actually brought to me yeah. um in yeah, advance yeah. uh by, you know, the people around me and, you know, the that transparency is super helpful. I was cognizant of it, paid a lot of attention to it. Uh and, you know, I think a big part of it as well is just uh, respecting that there are differences in skill 
skill sets and acumen and the way that people think and approach things and and making sure that you've got a certain level of humility whenever you don't have that deep understanding and that deep experience. You know, I definitely even still to this day, uh, the way that I interact with our engineering leadership is very different from the way that I interact with leadership across the rest of the company, because I know that one of those areas is one that I grew up in and I have a lot of credibility into the kind of the details of the craft. And in other areas, I have no credibility in the details of the craft, right? Like I have intuitions and I have a purview that is broader than they do, right? So I'm seeing more of the company um, and that those things are my unique value add. When I go and I work in another group, my value add to marketing or sales is that I'm also paying attention to what's going on, you know, broadly across the rest of the company. My value add is not to to be able to tell them the, you know, the specifics of the craft of selling. And so I think just understanding that, paying attention to it, um, and then learning and growing, you know, and, and being open to that was was really all it was. Was there someone or something that helped you the most in in getting there? Or was it just like, hey, I'm an expert over on this side of the house and I'm gonna listen, observe, and pick my spots of where I'm gonna you know, add value. This is clearly working. You guys have never missed a number. Uh, you know, so the business was working extremely well, mm-hmm. even even at this point in time. And so you were like, hey, I'm going to be in action mode over here and listen mode over here. Yeah. And, and you know, I think the kind of the sum total of my team as well as having, you know, having my wife there as well to kind of bounce things off of. Yeah. And and that was, uh, it was, it was great to just kind of have an environment that wasn't afraid to speak up and tell me where I was doing things wrong. And, and, you know, and, and I could observe where I was doing things right. And, and just to continue to develop that way. Yeah. So you touched on team. Uh, I think you've assembled a really impressive leadership team. Someone compared it to like, team of rivals like Lincoln uh, in his, uh, you know, uh, in the way he assembled his cabinet. But uh, how do you think about like bringing together different personalities at times, different people that are definitely going to disagree about things? How do you think about like recruiting that group together and then making them all work to the optimal decision. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it is it goes back to respecting people and their craft, right? And and also understanding that uh, we are stronger if we can get a group of people with a diverse set of strengths and be able to have them coexist with each other, right? And it's a, it's it's harder to get people that are different from each other uh, to kind of coalesce as a group and be able to move forward together than if you have a bunch of people that are, you know, more homogenous in various ways. But you also don't have as diverse of a set of strengths. And so in a world that is still so dynamic, right, we we as a company only exist because of the rapid change of both technology from a consumer and adoption standpoint, as well as the kind of technology that we use to enable ourselves to be able to service that opportunity that is is coming to existence because of the way that mobile changed the world and consumers and, and brands and what have you. Um, and then we also are in a dynamic world around us. You know, the I've been reflecting recently on how uh, the fact that I've been reading The Economist every week for the last you know 15 years is as important for me to make good decisions in my job as my my computer science education was because so much of what we deal yeah. with nowadays is geopolitical and a lot going on in the macro environment and those kinds of things. And so just respecting that, you know, people come at problems from different ways. Um, they bring different uh, levels of experience. They bring different specialties and disciplines. And if we can get those groups to, you know, coexist together, we will be a stronger whole. And so that's something I've always prioritized. I look for that when I bring in leaders. Uh, it's, it's funny that you kind of bring it back to Lincoln because I very explicitly actually uh, govern the company with a influence by, you know, federalism and federalism has its faults uh, in, in government here. But one of the things that it does well is that 
it's thoughtful about, you know, what does the kind of federal government or the company wide, you know, processes and rules and, and, the, and the technology choices, the ways we do things, where do we really need to have a company wide standard? And where can we enable departments to adapt the way that they run um, their groups in order to better suit their cultures? And so I've empowered my department heads to actually have kind of independence and autonomy in terms of making uh, decisions around a lot of different you know, policies, everything from, uh, you know, like, for instance, with return to office right now, we have a kind of menu of options and we've allowed for engineering to take a different choice than, you know, our global services and support group to have a different choice from our sales team. And that, you know, is not. That's something where we certainly benefit from there not being chaos and having everyone and every group just kind of deciding on their own. So that's why we've collapsed it down to a menu. But we also respect that these groups run best if given an ability to adapt the way that they do work to the people that are on those teams and, and a lot of those things that I spoke about before that really makes these groups different. So do you think setting that framework of, of uh, the federal kind of framework for that, like uh, as well as hiring, as well as messaging to the street, is that kind of your job as you think about it is to sort of set that and then enable people to succeed? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the a lot of that is the always on responsibility. Yeah. Um, and then there's also just, you know, keeping a understanding of, you know, where in the business needs more attention at any given time. And that's a constantly rotating problem, right? You know, as, as, uh, the company scales and different groups are scaling at, at different speeds and they're running into new challenges. And, um, you know, I, I like to say every team has their own form of production hell. You know, it's it, it varies from group to group. But uh, just being there in those moments as well to help, you know, teams through critical transformations or maybe places where, um, you know, we've got leadership gaps for various reasons and, and you know, kind of moving around the company in that way and, and personally assisting. Yeah. Interesting. So talk to me about uh, going public. So you went public last November. Yep. I was with your, uh, I remember watching it with your mom and, and dad. They were very, very proud. Yep, uh, we flew them out. It was well-timed. Like Delta had already come back down and Omicron hadn't shown up yet. So we actually managed to sneak in a pretty meaningful uh, in-person celebration for yes. the IPO, even yeah. though the roadshow was all virtual and all that. One of the uh, worst hangovers I've had was the next day after that. I was uh, I was out too late at a karaoke bar with uh, a lot of your team. Um, very nice. But a... Uh, a fun event. Uh, one of the things in talking to people uh, was that you actually shifted the conversation from um, the IPO itself to IPO readiness and public company readiness. Public company readiness. Yep. Um, how did you? Was that something you came up with on your own? What was the principles of that? Because uh, I think it, it, the way it manifested itself from my perspective was that you were preparing the company to run like your public, regardless of what the date was going to be because yeah. i think it kicked the can at one point we were going to do it at this point kicked the can a little bit later and then it ended up happening but it was unclear if there was going to be a window right yep. had we waited another six months you know probably would have been another, another six days six like, days yeah, probably yeah exactly we were yeah. up against the wall on that so how did you think about that and then how did that um manifest itself in action yeah i mean so there were a variety of things uh one of them was you know advice actually uh at the at the board and the investor level uh to years in advance start to think about what numbers we would eventually provide guidance on and that we would eventually report on and the and the type the types of metrics that you know the street would care about a simple example is like 
ARR is very important to private investors, right? Revenue is very important to the street, right? And so um, they they basically encouraged us to start to think about you know guiding the business in the way that we would when we were public years in advance, and that includes things like you know changing the way that we measure the company's performance for bonuses, in terms of thinking about commission plans, in terms of how um, we qualify sales activity and things like that. So there was already this idea that we should be looking into the future and using that to inform our behaviors today. Another thing is that I saw some what I felt were like just bad examples of uh, strategy in a lot of these really big private companies that were avoiding going public. You know, there was all this conversation like, why would I bother to go public? Because I can raise all this late stage money at these great valuations. And it's like, well, you know, from my perspective, they were just keeping themselves in, you know, the minor leagues for longer. And what that like allowed them to do, it, it, it's like if your goal is to avoid scrutiny for longer, you're probably going to build things in your culture that you don't want to be there. Right. And you're going to allow certain behaviors to cement themselves. And so from my perspective, like there are aspects of being public, um, you know, the, the quarterly cycle can lead to short term thinking in many ways. You want to make sure you have counterweights to that. Um, you know, there's there's, you know, all this additional scrutiny, et cetera. But so much of it actually makes you stronger and better. And so from my perspective, there was both the preparation and then also just the understanding that, you know, so many, I think, private company CEOs treat a lot of these public company um, activities and a lot of the other burdens that it has as like merely transactional cost that is to be avoided as a, you know, maybe it's an at best, it's a necessary evil. I think I thought a lot about it as just like these things make us better. They make us stronger. They make us more durable. Um, we're more predictable. We've got, you know, there's less room for mistakes and things like that. Like if you are a private company and you're able to pass a, you know, an audit from on public company accounting standards as the CEO, that should give you more confidence that everything's being done well. Right. So I just I didn't really understand why someone would want to avoid that, uh, if you will. And so that was another thing that drove toward it. And then the third thing was that I got um, I got a lot of advice from people just in terms of, you know, making sure that the company and, and everyone that was a part of it uh, didn't think of the IPO as the finish line, right? Because it's just another day in the company's history and there's a lot of time after it. You know, if we're going to build a generational company, we need to make sure um, that we're, we're continuing to think for the long term and we shouldn't have anyone's planning horizon, you know, end on a specific day when we raise money, right? Um, ultimately. And so, Combining those three things together, just saying, like, how do we start to organize ourselves on these things in advance? Because you can't, you know, as agile as you are as a company, you know, you shouldn't be changing people's comp plans and the way that you define success and things like that, like on an abrupt basis. Uh, there's also cultural things that I think you want to layer in. For instance, you do need to become a little bit less transparent as you become public because you can't be inadvertently leaking MNPI throughout your business. And so um, those were things that, uh, you know, we had to build controls and systems and also build replacements because a lot of the things that, you know, you would be transparent about are helpful for people to be able to know. And I don't want to suddenly take away data that was really helping people make better decisions in their job without making sure there was a suitable replacement. So those are other things that are are better to do on a longer time horizon. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, I just thought it would make us stronger. Cool. So uh, I guess at this point, so uh, it's been a successful IPO. It seems like you have a lot of runway from my vantage point, And mm -hmm. uh, it seems like you can be a very uh, longstanding independent public company. Um, what motivates you now you you know people can look up you own decent percentage of the company you've had a bunch of success you're going to be an empty nester at some point here one of the youngest ones i think in in history yep, uh, relatively soon relatively soon uh two and a half years right yep. two years uh so what what keeps you working as hard as you do 
I, I mean, I, I think it's just the dynamism of the challenge. You know, I've, I've af- often reflected on this having gone from CTO to CEO. People ask me a lot, you know, do you miss, you know, do you miss building software? And it's like, absolutely. Right. You know, I, I yeah. dedicated a lot of my life to that. Um, but the thing that I liked being about a technologist is that you're constantly working on new problems and you're always doing it with new capabilities. And it's a fast growing, you know, dynamic environment where, you know, a lot of people work together. You stand on the shoulders of giants and, and you build great new things kind of on the frontier of what's possible. And in a fast growing company, you're, you're doing the same thing. Uh, you're doing it, you know, not with software packages and libraries and the cloud. And, you know, and certainly we are doing that with the product, of course. But, um, you know, you're building new teams and new competencies and you're, you know, honing new muscles within the organization in order to go solve, you know, new problems, continue to expand our horizons. You know, every year we talked about um, the office footprint as a, as a pretty simple example. But, you know, breaking into new markets, the market itself continues to change. And so the, the challenge continues to be very much multidimensional, super dynamic. Uh, and we're we're always able to go and approach it with new capabilities that we're constantly building and and kind of making those investments. And so I think from my perspective, you know, the growth and the change is still a really engaging um, and challenging problem and, and one that, that really excites me. Yeah. And the opportunity in front of you. I uh, yeah, I remember talking to you at one point about like, you know, time horizons and long term excitement of all this stuff. And you're like, what am I going to I'll just go start another company at some point. And so it's like, I, I like the company I have. I'm just yep. going to keep building and learning and the challenges are dynamic and all that. Yeah. And, you know, one of the really interesting things about having now built something for 11 years is that we're building it at a scale that like almost by definition, it would take a decade to get back yeah. to. Right. And so, um, you know, I know that a lot of people kind of like to jump around, but uh, the new experiences that are available to you at scale are not accessible in the same way. Right. And like maybe you could go move to another company that is at a similar scale or is bigger, but you wouldn't have the history in the background and like, you know, be really in, in the tw- credibility that comes along in the with story. That. Yeah. I yeah, mean, absolutely. You're, you're in rarefied air already just by being a public company. And I think you have rarefied opportunity to continue to build around this. Absolutely. So, uh, last one. Um, we talked about this before. Give me the crypto story. <laughs> Jen. Yeah. So uh, my crypto story, uh, it actually, my wife is the main character in this. So my wife and I, we met in 2013. And I had been, as I do with most technologies, just kind of figuring out what was going on in this crypto world thing. And so I thought that it would be a funny stocking stuffer to buy my wife uh, some Bitcoin as a stocking stuffer. And by the way, as like you're the one that owns my domain, right? Uh, You own a lot of people's domain. You will do these little fun projects on the side just to entertain yourself. Yep. I'd like to troll people. Yep. So, yeah, I wish you bought me Bitcoin instead of uh, instead of bought my domain address. Well, this is the big reveal that I yeah, I'm the owner of Logan Bartlett.com. I know that you've referenced, you know, your friend that owns your domain name on this podcast yeah, a couple times in the one. past but uh yeah so i, I bought her um you know bitcoin for christmas and she was like w- you bought me a qr code for christmas like what is this and i kind of was like well you know you make a wallet and you do this and i explained it to her um and then uh you know she hodled it for a long time uh and i uh, just a couple years ago finally sold it and netted out about 20 grand from the stocking stuffer that i had you know bought her as a joke all those years prior and bought a forklift with it wow uh, so my wife actually uh she runs a, an art studio in brooklyn she is a kind of travels work all over the world it's called jen lewin studio my wife's name is is jen lewin um i also own or i rather i gifted to her for christmas jenlewin.f uh, as as i you know want to be kind of on the leading edge of buying domain names just in case by the way i think loganbartlett.f as of this recording is still available i don't think it i tried i looked it up i don't know if I it know. is yeah. i don't think i bought it so yeah. you know well someone you definitely has it have to check that out yeah um but 
you know, the uh, it, it it's kind of an awesome story because the uh, you know the Bitcoin investment I effectively kind of gave her a forklift as a stocking stuffer. <laughs> People say there's no online to offline use cases for Bitcoin. I just heard one right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you know, and and by buying the forklift, she actually was able to reconfigure uh, her studio, took the loading dock area that had been being used for the knowledge workers, um, and built a mezzanine over her shop and moved everyone up there because they were able to start lifting all their crates and pallets, you know, up onto the loading dock. And so I would say I could credit crypto with giving Jen uh, probably 50% increase in the space efficiency for her small business. Which you know, if that's not a real life crypto use case. There we are. Zach Weinberg, if you're listening, we heard it now. Uh, Bill, thanks for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good stuff. All right. So that'll do it for the 25th episode of Cartoon Avatars. Uh, Thank you to my friend Bill Magnuson for coming on and uh, and talking about all of that, as well as uh, Rashad for for giving me someone to talk to. So I'm not just a literal talking head talking into a screen. So um, I I think everyone's going to enjoy next week. We actually have a really nice slate of people coming on uh, over the course of the next next couple weeks. And uh, yeah, we have a plan to release the infamous Sam Lesson, Zach Weinberg crypto debate too. So uh, trust everyone will enjoy the next couple weeks. Uh, Thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you next week for episode 26. Mm